James chapter 5, verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath. Let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Thanks, Stephen. Last week, Dana got all of Isaiah 59 this week. <laughs> so if Dana gives you the stink eye, you know why. Thanks for being here, everyone. Before I get to this morning's text that Stephen just read, I want to say just a brief word about John's sermon from last Sunday. I I really appreciated it. It was, I I wrote down mildly surprising, but I I think it was more than just that. It was more than mildly surprising even to see such parallels between what ancient Israel had given uh, herself over to the ancient Israelites had given themselves over to and what many today have given ourselves over to, both inside and outside of the church. And the line in particular in the text that he shared that still sticks with me, even even in a haunting way, was, was this. It was verse 15. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself prey. So to not do evil makes yourself is to make yourself pray in, in that at that time. And and then the two specific ideas from his sermon that really stood out to me in light of that were first, that unrepentant and unchecked sin corrupts the whole person. And I, I really am thankful John pointed out Isaiah using the, the specifically mentioning hands and fingers and lips and tongues and feet and minds, all of that being corrupted by sin. And second, that while Isaiah wasn't a participant in the sins, at least not the ones he listed uh, of Judah, he was a participant in the consequences of their sin. In other words, unrepentant and unchecked sin not only corrupts the whole person, but also the, the society in which they dwell. That's sobering. My main my main takeaway that I've tried to do this week, I've had the opportunity to do a few or last week and going forward is increasingly I think we need to tell the bigger story of our faith in Christ. Not not just four points. People need four points of the gospel, but John's sermon helped me to appreciate we need to tell the bigger story more and more inside which those four points fit. So thanks, John. That was that was helpful. It's neat to be able to go on vacation and come back and hear the word preached so faithfully. All right, so James, right? That's where we are. James 12. Hopefully you remember. Um, if you're new, welcome. We're almost done with James. Uh, we're glad you're here for this. You missed a lot of gold. I'm going to catch you up. Uh, hopefully you remember, or oh, hopefully I can help you to understand real quickly that James's consistent charge is a lot of charge charges. In fact, James is known for his imperatives, his commands. Um, but but the most consistent one, the, the one that sort of the banner over all of them is that he means his readers to not merely hear the word of God as if that were an end in itself, but to hear it and then do it. He wants them to listen carefully to God's word and then and then live it out. And much, if not most, well, most, if not all of the letter, actually, is James addressing different ways that they'd failed to do that, that they'd heard the word of God, but were not, in fact, living it out. That's that's all of James. We've been at this for like a year. I just saved you a whole year's worth of sermons, and there it is, one, one, few, one paragraph. 
Well, regretfully, here's, here's the thing. We, we live in a culture, just like John helped us to see um, back in Isaiah 59, they did too. But we live, regretfully, in a culture in which both parts, both the hearing and the doing, are becoming increasingly alien, foreign. Both are falling more and more by the wayside. It has long been a problem for people to listen to God's commands, even to sort of, in our own way, kind of nod our heads and agree with them with no real intention of doing them, or maybe doing just enough of them that we're comfortable with, but no more. But but in a, a way that we're seeing more and more, I think, at least in my lifetime, and we're still is the fact that today a rapidly growing number of people are refusing even to hear it, the word of God, even to acknowledge that there is a God who has a word or that that word is binding in any meaningful sense. More and more people are denying the existence of a revelation of God to begin with that we would hear, much less do. So directly and indirectly, James's letter is meant to address both of those. And we're We'd be wise. We are wise if we heed his divinely inspired warning. Okay, so critically, two parts. Putting this larger principle of James into practice, being not hearers only but doers also, requires requires two things. First, it requires an acknowledgement of God's word as God's word. That God has spoken. That he has spoken authoritatively. That it is binding for all mankind. We need to begin there. And from there, by the grace of God, to have it grow in us is something we love. Not just acknowledge reluctantly, but increasingly love. Are eager to live by. That, that we need to obey James. A growing appetite for the word of God. And a trust that it is the way, the truth, and the life. Grace, we must continually cultivate through prayerful times in the Word, being in it ourselves, sitting under it as you are right now, coming to Berea to hear it taught, even how it's been understood historically. That's the first ingredient. If we're going to obey James, we need to acknowledge the Word of God as the Word of God and grow in our love for it as well. But secondly, and this is where James comes in even more, secondly, obeying it requires specific content. We can't just generally know that it is the word of God and generally know that it's lovely and even believe that it's lovely and having experienced that in certain ways. But even with an acceptance of the Bible as the word of God and a love for it, we still need to know what exactly it is we're meant to hear and obey if we're going to obey James. Again, he's given us a number of answers already through the first five chapters. But one of the main ones that keeps coming up over and over. Do you already know what it is? If you've been here, I hope you do. One of the main ones that keeps coming back over and over and over concerns the manner in which the people of God speak to and about one another. Over and over, he talks about the way we talk and gives instructions on it that we're meant to hear and obey. He repeatedly explained how powerful our words are by God's design He repeatedly explained how tied they are to Christian maturity. Your words, the way you talk, the things you talk about, tell an awful lot about your maturity in Christ. And also, we've seen this a number of times in James also, and anyone who's been in a church for any length of time has experienced this. Our words are critical 
to Christian fellowship and faithful ministry. If our words are trash, our fellowship is trash. And we trash the name of Christ to the world we're trying to proclaim the gospel to. So all this James has already given us, this morning is another example of that, of how our words matter according to our faith. Okay, so what then, before I pray, is the essence of this new speech command? Another one in a fairly long line of them. What is the essence of this new speech command that James calls us to in verse 12? Here's my best attempt at saying it in a sense. I think the simplest way to communicate the main point that James is driving at in verse 12 is this. Keep your word, people of God. Grace Church, those who are calling on the name of Jesus. Keep your word always because it is what God does. He keeps his word always. And because there is condemnation for those who don't. I think I can help you see all that in the text. My main hope and prayer, therefore, is that all of us, if you hear this, and not just hear it, but do it also, We'll grow in our love for God as we consider God the truth keeper and his perfect truth keeping and that our words would increasingly reflect all of that. So let's pray that that would be the case. God, once again, James has led us to a passage that probably none of us woke up this morning feeling a deep need to have explained to us. This is not probably a felt need for a lot of people in this room. Whatever itches that we have, this probably isn't going to scratch that, um, at, at least in terms of what we came in here thinking. And yet this is your word, and we need this. And in your providence, we apparently need this today. We thank you for that. I, I pray that you would make us a people, an ever-increasing, a, a people who are ever-increasingly aware that you know our needs better than we do, that what you tell us we need to know is more significant than even what we think we need to know. Please, please help us to continue to grow in our appetite for your word, all of it, every, every part of it, as it describes who you are and who we are and what it means to live in this world and how we might be reconciled to Christ and reconciled to you through Christ and how all of, where, where all of that is going into the new heavens and the new earth. Please help us to understand that every Every piece of this is a part of that larger story, and we need it all. So help us this morning, I pray, to lean in, and in the end, to grow in our love for you as a perfect truth speaker, and as a result, to grow to be better truth speakers for your name's sake, for our joy. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so a little more in the way of background. Before we get to the specific content of this this one verse, it's important to note that it's almost an exact quote. In fact, if you want to do something interesting this week, uh, go ahead and write out um, the, the, this one verse in James 5.12, and then right next to it, like parallel to it, write out Matthew 5.33 30, 33 to 37, and just put the clauses that are similar right next to each other. And it's remarkable how parallel they are. So here's Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 33 to 37. Again, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for that is it is the throne of God, 
or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. So James' point is James clearly had Jesus' words in mind when he wrote the verse we have for this morning. Undoubtedly, verse 12 came from James having heard his brother say the words we have in Matthew's gospel. But And I'm going to tell you why this matters in a second. But even more than that, that's significant. Even more significant, though, is that Jesus himself certainly had yet another passage in mind. He was quoting yet another passage when he said what he said in Matthew 5. That is, James was quoting Jesus, who was quoting the Father from Leviticus 19.12. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane, profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. All right, so why does that matter? Why, why am I giving you that this morning? The main point for us to see, we're not even to the text yet, the main point for us to see as we get there, an important part of the reason for the initial clause, look at the, the first clause here, but above all, the main reason for that is that in writing what he did, James was not writing something new. Far from a original or novel command, James was tapping into one of the oldest commands God had ever given his people to be promise keepers, especially when making a promise in the name of God. Rightly understood. Why does this matter? Rightly understood, it, I think, it helps us to lean more into this, to appreciate the importance of this, lean in a bit further into this passage. So do that. Let's do that together, right? And, and I've got more help for that. This first clause is even more help. In 5.12, it begins with three words in addition to the fact that James is quoting Jesus who is quoting the Father. We get more help to see the importance of this. James has said quite a few things. I counted them up. I went back, reread one through what we've been through, one through 4.11 or 5.11. 30 commands I counted we've already heard in this passage. And James chooses right here and now to say, but above all. It's kind of a big deal, right? 30 commands I've already given, plus some other stuff, but above all. So whatever comes next is a big deal. To be fair, he, he, didn't, he didn't mean that what followed was truly the most important thing that he will have said or that has ever been said. He's already told us that. Jesus made it clear, and James understood that. In chapter 2, verse 8, he referred to the royal law or the law of love. We know that's above all in its own sense, but... James did mean, however, that among the things that he had already written, this stands out. This is near the top of the pile. In typical James fashion, he didn't feel the need to tell us why. He just simply said it. But I want to tell you why briefly. Why is this? Why would he say something like, above all, for a passage like this? The most basic explanation is found in two sentences Jesus said, it's recorded a little later in Matthew. We, we heard from him in Matthew 5, but in Matthew 12, Jesus says this, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure in his heart brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. One of the main reasons, and we're going to see a second at the end of the sermon, that James puts such a, a high value on what he's about to say, the, the command he's about to give. 
on the speech habits of his readers was that the words of his readers revealed the hearts of his readers. Grace, the things we say tell far more about the condition of our heart than whatever we might say about our hearts, whatever we might think about our hearts. The reason this is so critical, and James keeps coming back to the, the, the speech commands, is because the things we say or don't say tell more about our hearts than almost anything else, the, the condition. And so you're, you're going to see the command, or you've already seen it, Stephen read it, but making false promises in God's name, in God's name, indicates a heart that is desperately sick. That's why this is such a big deal. Again, this too ought to help us to appreciate the importance of what follows, the importance of this command, to lean in and listen, even if you didn't wake up this morning thinking, man, I sure hope to hear more about oath-keeping today. Anyone? Stephen Stephen and Bruce, you guys are liars, I guess, and you need some help. It's good that you're here. All right, well, what follows then is a two-part charge. The the two-part charge has the same thing negatively and then positively. Let's look at the negative version first. James's main point is that we must always keep our word. Negatively, he says it like this. Do not swear. Now, at least if you're like me, most of you think something different when you hear the, the command not to swear. To swear in this sense does not mean don't use cuss words or vulgar language. It means, the word swear means make, to make a promise or to take an oath. Oath making was a really significant part of the customs of the ancient world. At times, it was even commanded by God. Exodus 22 and Numbers 5 and other places. In other words, James's command, get this, settle on this, was not a prohibition against making any kind of oath. Some, some have taken it that way. That's not what it was. But it was a prohibition against making a certain kind of oath, the kind that was disingenuous and not intending to be kept. That'll, I think, become more clear in a minute. In short, it was a prohibition against making false or misleading oaths. Now, there's two levels to this that I, I think we need to get. The first is that God's people, this was a habit that they had fallen into for many centuries and had carried on all the way up until the time James wrote his letter. Again, the first is that God's people were explicitly and repeatedly prohibited from breaking any promise. To lie was a sin, but especially those made in God's name. To swear by the name of God was to invoke the strictest kind of scrutiny. So I've shared this example before, but I think it'll be helpful, especially for the kids, to get this here. When I was a kid, I lied a lot, uh, a lot. I said what I felt like I needed to say to get what I felt like I needed to get. Now, I'll be honest, preferably I didn't have to lie to do it, but that wasn't a big obstacle if I did. I'm not, I wasn't a Christian. I wasn't calling on the name of Jesus. This was my native tongue because my father was still the the devil. But, but I, I would... I would prefer to be able to tell the truth and get what I wanted, but it wasn't necessary. Well, I had a weakness. I had many weaknesses, but in this area, I had one particular weakness, meaning in my propensity to lie. There was a, a chink in my lying armor. Uh, and I had a, well, fortunately, unfortunately, I had a, a friend who was even less scrupulous than me find that chink and, and figure out how to manipulate it. All right, here, here it was. I lied a lot. 
And so did this particular friend. And we learned, of course, then to be skeptical of one another. Consequently, to simply say something like, hey, I'll pay you back. Loan me some money. I'll pay you back. It didn't really mean much. And we knew that. And so there was all kinds of weird things that we would do to get our friend to lend us money, get, get my friend to lend me money or him, me him or whatever. But so again, to simply say something like I'll pay you back was dubious at best. It was probably less than 50-50. So our word was not sufficient collateral for either of us. Okay, so one time, I must, I don't remember the exact circumstance. I just remember the final outcome. I must have really wanted something and I was really digging deep to find out how I could get him to believe me so that he would give it to me. And so I said to him, I swear to God, I'll pay you back or some something. I don't know if it was pay you back, but it was something like that. Again, I wasn't a Christian, but there was enough common grace fear of God in me that I wasn't able to break that oath. Whenever I, If I were to make that, I could not bring myself to break that oath. Well, he picked up on that, and that ruined my lying ability with him from that point on. And and so he would never trust me for anything going forward if I didn't swear to God that I would do it or not do it. All right, so that's silly, right? It's a silly example. But kids, I, I hope it helps you to see that this is really the heart of what James, Jesus, and the Father all had in mind. Like me, the, the Jews and James's readers in particular were unscrupulous enough to lie. But they also feared God too much to do it when swearing in his name. And so that leads to the second level. So what do you do then? you got a problem. You want to lie to get what you want, but you can't do it in God's name. So what do you do? Well, they'd figured out kind of a way around this. And this is what James is talking about most directly. He didn't merely command them not to swear. There's another part to this, right? Don't swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. Again, there was enough fear of God in James's readers not to break an oath they made directly in God's name. But like many other Jews, they'd given themselves to the practice of swearing by something important or significant, but in their minds, not quite as significant as the name of God himself. So instead of swearing in the name of God, they'd swear by heaven, Jesus said, or by earth, or by one's head, or by some other oath. It's sort of like saying, I swear my, my, on my mother's grave. You've heard that, right, at some point? Maybe you've said it. Now, now, doing this was one step short in their minds of swearing in the name of the Lord, but one step greater than simply swearing on their own word. So there's a problem for all kinds of reasons, as you can imagine. And chief among them was the fact that they were doing so, so that they could lie with clearer consequences and less with a clearer conscience and less consequences. But as we've already seen, this was a lie. This was fake. They they believed something that wasn't true about this type of deceit. This was serious. So in making a false oath, they'd swear by heaven. But Jesus said that to do so was to swear by the very throne of God, or to swear by earth is to swear by God's footstool, or to swear by Jerusalem was to swear by the city of the temple of God, or to Swear by their own heads was to swear by that which belongs to God, or to swear in their mother's grave was to swear by something that was entirely in God's hands. And so Jesus or James commanded his readers to knock it off, stop doing that, or any form of that. He told them to stop swearing by anything at all as a means of swearing falsely, because lying is wrong, 
And lying by anything belonging to God is the same as lying in God's name. So knock it off. Knock all that off. That's that's the negative version of this. Evidently, they were struggling with this, and James wrote to correct this. It's helpful to know what we shouldn't do, which is what James just gave us. But often it's even more helpful to know what we should do. And so he stated the same thing positively as well. Do not swear negatively, but positively, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Favorite commentator, I think I, I need to give you a quote from him every week. And, and here's your weekly Thomas Manton quote from the, the sermon. He says, the first yes refers to the promise and the second to the action. It's a great way to summarize the positive clause that James gives here. Well, what does that mean? It means that James James's command was to let your saying yes, the promise, Results in your doing yes every time the action. There should never be a disconnect between those two things. You're saying yes and you're doing yes. Let your yes words be yes always actions. So what James was driving at here is that when an oath is taken, this is a big deal because you might wonder, well, how then could you take an oath to the glory of God? What James is driving at here is that when an oath is taken, it should be to show the goodness and seriousness of the situation, not to make the agreement more certain. All right, let me say that in a different way that I think will be helpful. For instance, when you get married, picture yourself. I had the privilege of marrying my oldest son a couple of weeks ago. Stood in front of everyone, and they took oaths or made vows to one another. So how is that different than what James is getting at? Okay, so for instance, when we get married, we're eager to hear those vows. We, we love to hear those words from our spouse. Not, not because it makes it more likely that they will be faithful to us. As if neither of you were quite certain. Are they going to promise this or not? I'm, I'm sitting here waiting. Oh, good. They did. They made the promise. All right, we're, we're all set now. That would be absurd. Instead, we delight to hear the words because they remind us of the wonderful and serious commitment this is that we are are taking part in together. So let me say it a little bit more straightforwardly. If you're waiting to hear your spouse's vows at the altar before knowing whether or not they're trustworthy, you're in big trouble. All right? Remember that, kids, parents, as you contemplate who your kids are going to marry, how they're going to get married. If you're waiting until that moment in the ceremony to find out whether they'll make this or not, you got a problem. It's because you know that they are trustworthy that you decided to marry them in the first place. Your wedding vows are just public declarations of the wonderful commitments you've already made to each other and the firm trust you already have in each other. So more specifically, as God's people, we we must never need to add anything to our yes for someone else to trust that we will follow through or no to know that we'll steadfastly refrain. So let me get a little bit more practical before I close with James's reasoning behind all of this. Four things. There's five on your sheet. That's a lie. <laughs> I didn't mean it to be. <laughs> there was five. I combined two. Uh, okay. Just so you really get a sense of this, I think I think this is important. Number one, practically, don't lie. All right, that's low-hanging fruit, black and white. Obeying James's command means that other people ought to know you as someone whose word is as certain as humanly possible. He, he teaches us to say, if the Lord wills, that's not an excuse to not do it. It's to say, if, if there's anything that my power has the ability to do, it will do this. People should be truly, think about this, kids especially, 
Think carefully. People should truly be caught off guard when you when you say you'll do something and don't do it. Or if you say you won't do something and you do do it. Number one is never lie. Number two is say yes and no to right things. If you're going to do that, if you're going to keep your word without exception the way James calls you to, you need to make sure that you're careful with your yeses and your noes. Don't say yes to something that you shouldn't or no to something that you shouldn't. Of course, this means not agreeing on the most basic level to engage. Don't say yes to sin or no to a command of God, but but probably, that, that's not a question you're dealing with, probably more helpfully it means not saying yes to yeser things or no to greater things. What do I mean by that? Don't don't tell your buddy you'll go golfing on your wife's birthday. <laughs> like there's nothing wrong with going golfing, but the greater thing is your wife's birthday. So don't don't say yes to that when you're going to end up having to say no. Don't say no to a friend asking to share the gospel at the farmer's market because there's some sporting event on TV. In other words, and here's the key, don't say yes or no to things that godliness will require you to walk back later if you choose to walk in godliness. All right, number three, do what you say as you say you will do it. So when you give your word or make an oath or a promise to someone, do what you say as you say you will do it. The first two are more black and white. These last two are a little bit more subtle. Don't exaggerate and don't constantly or alter your commitments. What do I mean by that? Don't imply you'll do more than you actually plan to do. Don't tell a friend you'll help them with the roof only to drop by for an hour. Don't agree to disciple someone if you know you're only available for a few minutes every few weeks at 4 a.m. And don't tell someone you'll cover you'll come over at 1 and then 2 and then 3 and then 4. When you give your word, do what you say you'll do. And finally, say yes and say no. You have to use those words. Don't be wishy-washy. Another more subtle form of disobeying James is never finally saying yes or no. Let your yes be yes and your no be no means giving clear yeses and clear noes. Don't make it so that everything is always mushy and no one knows what you're really agreeing to so that you never technically broke your word. Minnesota Nice often encourages us to say yes to things merely to be present or pleasant. We don't necessarily intend not to do those things, but we don't necessarily intend to do them either. Don't do that. It might be proper Minnesota etiquette, but it dis- disobeys James's command here. So here it is. Do not swear either by heaven or earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. You shouldn't need to add anything to your yeses or nos for people to know that they can trust you to do what you said as you said you'll do it, when you said you'll do it and how you said you'll do it. You should, should you ever need to take a formal oath or choose to, it ought to highlight the seriousness and significance and even goodness of the promise not to make your yes or no more certain. Those things are at the heart of James's command. I hope, I hope it's clear what he meant, and I hope it's clear that it's important. But why? Why is it that this is so significant? I gave you a couple of reasons, but James gives us two more. One explicit and one implicit. Explicitly, James commanded his readers to avoid swearing falsely and instead to do what they said they would because failing to do so leads to condemnation. Do not swear either by heaven or earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, and then explicitly the reason why, so that you may not fall under condemnation. 
The bottom and simple line is that people who lie without remorse and refuse to acknowledge deceit as sin betray the fact that their hope is not in Jesus and that they remain condemned in their sin. Listen to 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. And I actually had like four different passages that all were like this. I, I took the rest out for space. But I want you to consider as I read this, the company that lying keeps in the mind and heart of God. So what company, among other sins, does lying keep? First Timothy 1, 9 and 10. And if you want, I'll give you the other passages like this later. He says, Paul says this, Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners. Now, what constitutes that? The lawlessness, disobedience, ungodliness, sin. What, what kinds of things make that up? Well, he gives you a list. Things that are unholy and profane, those who strike, punch, hit their fathers and mothers, murderers, sexually immoral, adulterers and fornicators, men who practice homosexuality, people who enslave others against their will. And then the the last two, along with that, are liars and perjurers. A perjurer is just another form of lying and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Again, have you ever noticed the company that lying keeps among sins? Have you kids thought that the lies you told last week about your brother or sister were in the same category as hitting your parents or murdering somebody or being sexually immoral or having slaves? Probably not. Oath-breaking is a sin, and like every sin, the wages of sin is death. Our only hope in escaping this condemnation that James warns of and the death that our sin, any or all of it, deserves is the grace of God, credited to us through faith in Jesus Christ. Where there is not an acknowledgement of this, a fight against this, and even, uh, even if a maddeningly gradual lessening of this, there is condemnation. Not because God changed his mind about you, but because in that, you're demonstrating that your hope never really was in Christ. In other words, explicitly, keep your oaths, Grace Church, not be, because doing so is a really big deal. There's another one, though, implicitly, and even more significantly. That's a big deal. This is a bigger deal. James commanded his readers to avoid swearing falsely because that's what God does, perfectly, every time. Listen to Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man, God is not man that he should lie, or the son of man that he should change his mind. Does this sound this last clause sound familiar? He has he said and will he not do it? No. Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Likewise, Hebrews 6:18 says that it is impossible for God to lie. Here's the here's the thing, Grace. Our great hope in life and death is that God will continue to keep his promises to us, to save us in Jesus. If he doesn't perfectly keep his promises, we're doomed. But thanks be to God. He always has and forever will keep his every word. All of that is what Paul had in mind then in Titus 1-2 when he said that Christians have the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. What does that mean? 
That means, therefore, that we ought to always keep our word in God's name because in doing so, we're helping the people around us in our church and our community and to the ends of the earth understand God's glorious nature as a perfect promise keeper and the trustworthiness of the gospel. That's why we can trust that Jesus' death was and always will be perfectly sufficient. I don't know if you ever made that connection like like Paul did, but your truth-telling and the credibility of the gospel are connected. That's pretty remarkable. Conversely, then, of course, it also means, as James' readers were doing, that when we break our word in God's name, we are lying about who God is and keeping the world from seeing the gospel's true power. So in conclusion, I imagine that most of you have no problem admitting that this is right and true. You shouldn't break your oath. But I also imagine that most of you have a decent sense that doing so perfectly every time is hard. Indeed, it's impossible in our own strength. Hear the gospel, Grace. We cannot obey James's command here or any of the other commands that God's word holds out for us on our own. And it gets worse. We can't even want to. You wouldn't even want to obey this apart from something helping you outside of you. But God has not left us on our own. He has provided for us sufficient help. He has not left us to obey in our own power. In his son, grace, we have forgiveness of sins for every broken oath and every other sin. And in his spirit, we have power for every obedience that he calls us to. What's more, get this, praise God for this. We're about to sing in response to this. This sings right here. What's more, as you've heard me say many times before, every command of God is two things that we really need. It's a description of the very nature of God, and it's a promise of what God is making all of his people into. That is awesome. Sing about that. I mean that. Every command that God gives reveals some aspect of who he is and what he is making us into, certainly if our hope is in Christ. This is not, this is not ultimately some impossible feat of strength. James's words here, therefore, are not mainly a call to a good but insurmountable task that we're meant to full futilely pursue until Christ returns. That's what you and I almost always think of when we hear the commands of God. So I'm going to say it again. Think about this. James's words here, therefore, or any of the commands of God are not what they often seem to be, namely a call to a good but insurmountable task that we're meant to futilely pursue until Christ returns. Is that how you think of the commands of God? I, I think it often is. Instead, again, they are descriptions of who God is and what he is certainly making us into in Christ. Take heart in the fact that they are a charge, they're a description, they're, they're a wonderful explanation of what we are graciously becoming. Therefore, keep your word every time, Grace Church, because God does. Do so in the knowledge that, Christ, that in Christ your broken promises have been forgiven, your condemnation is gone, you have all the strength you need to start keeping them now, and God is certainly transforming you into one that loves the true God with all that you have and all that you are.